As you have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 10, we'll dismiss the kindergarten and first grade. Mark chapter 10. If you've been with us, we've been going through a series on discipleship. And it just seems that um, because we're preaching through the text, we've run into these um, fairly challenging topics. Sin, cutting yourself off from sin, hell, your own pursuit of greatness and its need to be totally redefined. And now we come into marriage. Pretty soon we're going to come into money, power. I mean, it's just one big thing after another for a preacher. And... um, I don't know many of you, so I don't know what kind of households you grew up in. I don't necessarily know what kind of marriages you are or you have been in. But we're going to talk about marriage, and there's all kinds of opportunities for um, challenges in your thinking. So let's um, ask the Lord to be with us. There's something about a marriage relationship Christ, that we see in the reading of your word that reflects the ideal relationship between us and you. And yet we live in a fallen world. We're part of that ourselves. Yet we continue to get married and in our sinfulness, we make all kinds of mistakes. The people that we marry have all kinds of failures. And we find ourselves in some very unusual circumstances sometimes in marriage. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, as we just look at this text, we're not going to be able to answer every question. But we want to hold up marriage, see it as you meant it to be. And pray the process of that does minister to every person and every marriage particularly. In Christ's name, amen. I don't know if you're familiar with a a series of books titled Dear America. I would not be familiar with it if I wasn't married to somebody who liked to read. But it's a very fascinating little series. It's a historical fiction. They're very small books. And it's written from a diary perspective, and they've fragmented different pieces of, his, uh, of a historical event together, and they try to make a diary. So they have this one person narrating uh, a particular feeling about an event in American history, or maybe a particular time in American history. One of the books is called A Christ Across the Wide and Lonesome Prairie, which records the 2,000-mile trip from Independence, Missouri, to Oregon. So it was the trail known as the Oregon Trail. And what was it like when you got on the trail at Independence, Missouri, and you realized you were going to travel 2,000 miles, mostly on foot, to Oregon, and this little girl writes a diary about what that's like. And one of the sort of subplots of the book is the mother's response to the trip. The, the family starts out like every other family. They have a covered wagon, just like you might think of in the movies, and the wagon is stuffed so much, full of stuff, 
that you can't even get in the back of the wagon. You're either riding right up front or you're walking alongside. And so as they make their way through, obviously with lots of food and different possessions, they have to use up some of them. But what you learn in the story is that most of the prized possessions, the things that they started out on the journey, not the food that they were going to consume, but the possessions that they had, had to get left on the side of the trail. And in fact, in one point of the story, they leave so many things behind, the little girl said, it looks like we were leaving behind the general store. We left behind a trunk full of treasures. We left behind a wedding dress. We left behind some furniture that my grandparents made. We left behind some tools that my father may have needed. And she says, I waited for Ma to break down, but she didn't. She reminded me that this was the last chance to follow a dream. After six months of travel, they entered into Oregon on foot. They didn't even have the wagon left. They didn't have the animal that was pulling the wagon. And the mother enters with one dress, the dress that she started with, the dress on her back, and one spoon in her pocket. That's all she has. And what you realize is that thousands of people took that trip and they all had to lay aside very valuable possessions on the side of the road. Things that they thought they should have. Things that they thought they needed. And in the end, they realized they didn't have to have those things. They didn't need those things. See, to reach the dream of a new life in Oregon required things being laid aside. We're in this discipleship series, and you come to Mark chapter 8, the turning point in the book. And the disciples have been following Jesus, and now in Mark chapter 8, they've made this proclamation. You are the Christ. They look at Jesus and say, you're it. We finally get it. And then right on the heels of that, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, okay, right. You've got it right. You've got the right words down. Now let's make sure we're walking in the right direction. You're, you're saying the right words. Let's make sure we're walking in the right way. And he lays down right from the very beginning this basic foundation or basic guideline for those who are willing to get on the trail of discipleship. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. It serves as a, as a directional arrow. If you're willing to get on this trail then this is, the, this is the instruction, the basic guideline to follow, to keep your way. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, if anybody wants to get on this trail, he must deny himself, he must take up his cross, and he must follow me. Whoever loses his life, I want you to hear this language of laying things aside. If, if you want to come after me, what's going to have to be laid aside is yourself. If you lose your life, if you lay your life on the side of the road for my sake and the Gospels, you will save it. So immediately Jesus is trying to help his disciples understand that walking in the right direction requires laying aside prized possessions, and those possessions are yourself. Things 
that you started out thinking, everyone should have these. Everyone needs these things to make it all the way. And in Mark chapter 9 and 10, he's been giving us this short list of things that must be laid aside for discipleship. Your pursuit of greatness must be laid aside. All kinds of sinful habits or patterns have to be severed, even if it's at great cost to yourself. Your perspective on marriage, money, power, control, all have to be laid aside. When Jesus enters into the discussion and He's talking about these things, He's not entering into your life. He's not entering into my life saying, well, these are kind of things that need to be tweaked. I mean, you've, you sort of got most of it. We just need to tweak this. He's saying, that needs to be severed. We need to completely redefine your idea of greatness. You're following after greatness, and I want you to follow after greatness. I want you to pursue it with your whole soul, but it's in this direction. It's got to be completely redefined. He, he's boring into the very center of our lives because he's, he's trying to shift the center of gravity. Before Christ, the center of gravity for you and for me just revolves around ourselves. What's best for me? What do I need? What do I have to have to make it? And He's shifting the center of gravity away from ourselves, away from our possessions, and towards Christ. Every, everything else gets laid aside on the side of the road. And so, when we study this in Mark Every week we have to come back to this point because we have to ask ourselves this question seriously. Whether this guideline for discipleship, for denying yourself, for taking up your cross, for losing your life, really represents your marching orders. I mean, is, is that the foundation? Or is it just a, an option? And we need to ask ourselves, does our life really, is it, is it really revolving around Christ or is it revolving around our own personal fulfillment, our own control, our own finances, our own health, our own need to be heard, our own need to be right, our own need to be needed? I mean, are those are the things that are valuable. Are those the things you must have to make it? Because if it is, you're not going to make it. So it's important to begin this question today because there's really no other relationship that's going to test whether this is your foundation or whether this is an option than marriage. Now, for all of you who've been married or are married, you understand this right away. There's nothing more powerful about a marriage. Nothing more life-giving. And at the same time, and almost in a stroke of a second, you can love the person and want to reach out and choke them to death at the same time. You find these powerful emotions welling up inside of you. And what's going what's to happen at those points of being a Christ-like image in your marriage is whether the foundation of your life is to deny yourself, to take up your cross, 
to lose your life? Or is it about you? Do you have to have something first in order to serve? And that's what Christ is trying to get at here. The marriage is like a crucible. And everything gets burned off or burned up in a marriage. And you find out really what's at the core. So I'm going to press pause here. We're going to talk about this passage. And then the first two weeks in November, we're going to revisit a couple of sermons I did a, a couple of years ago about the role of a, of a wife in a marriage, the role of a husband in a marriage. Hopefully helping us see the value in this. There's, there's nobody that's in this room that's not affected by a marriage, whether one that you're in or one that you lived in as a child. So let's look at the passage here before us in Mark 10, and let's look at the backdrop of the question that the Pharisees are asking. They come to Jesus. Remember, Jesus has been mostly up in the Sea of Galilee, that area. He's been teaching his disciples. He's particularly been taking them aside and saying, this is what it looks like to be a disciple. And then once they get that, he sets his face in a different direction, and now he's going to Jerusalem. And he understands he's going to the cross. And on his way, people begin to see that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. He's getting close. He's getting in the region of Judea. And all kinds of people are coming around him again to see, well, here he comes. Let's hear from this rabbi. Let's hear from this great teacher. And the Pharisees work their way into the crowd. And they're not really asking the question about marriage and divorce. Notice that they're... They're coming up to him in verse 2, and they're trying to trap him. They're just looking for a way to trap Jesus. Now, there are a couple of ways that they could have been trying to trap Jesus. One of them is, you remember back in Mark chapter 6, John the Baptist, the story of John the Baptist. John the Baptist had uh, spoken out very uh, frankly about the marriage between Herod at that particular point and his brother's wife, or the, I would say the relationship they were in. Herod Antipas was in an adulterous relationship with his brother's wife. And so John the Baptist is saying, this isn't right. And the result of that was what? Beheaded. So they're thinking, well, Jesus is back into this governing place where Herod is. If we can get him to say the wrong thing, Herod will grab him and chop off his head. That's really what we want. So maybe that's part of the trap. Or the other part of the trap here is that in the, in the ideas of the Pharisees that there were two different, uh, there were two competing thoughts about divorce and what's really legitimate about divorce. And the two different schools of thought really come back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, which we read. If you look at Deuteronomy 24, you'll notice that it starts out with if... And then it has three verses. If all these things happen, then verse 4. And really the whole context of those four verses aren't really about divorce. It's about not being able to remarry a woman that you have previously been married to. That's the context. But the Pharisees go back and say, well, what about this little phrase in there that if you found some indecency... they." Notice how the Pharisees are. They're coming in and they're zeroing in on a little phrase and saying, when, you, when a husband has found some indecency, then he's going to write her a certificate of divorce and send her on her way. The law really was written as a way to protect men from just being um, 
impulsive and also a way to protect women uh, from being used over and over again by different men. So that was the purpose of the law. But they're zeroing in on this little phrase that, that if a man has found some indecency. And the two schools of thought is the conservative school, and that is if the woman had had some sort of illicit sexual behavior prior to their marriage, it gets discovered after they're married, and then he's going to write a certificate and she's going to be away. She's going to be sent away. And we all know this story because that's exactly what Joseph was trying to do. Remember that? He finds out pretty clearly that he's married somebody who's pregnant, and he's going to quietly send her away. So that's one school of thought. And the other school of thought is a more liberal view, and that meant that the word or the wording found some indecency referred to anything a man might find offensive about his wife. Well, you can see where that would go. It could be, and it's written down, if she serves you some burnt food, you could send her away. And so most of us would have trouble in that particular place. Uh, So there's all kinds of reasons that got made up, and so that's some indecency. I don't like that. And then they just begin to send her away. So you have these two, two different thoughts, and you see what's happening here? Whichever way Christ goes... They don't really care even if they're on the right side. It doesn't matter to them. They just want the other side to be sort of in an uproar about it and eliminate Christ. That's the goal for them. And Jesus uses it as an opportunity to expound on marriage. And so he asked them this. They come to ask Christ, the incarnate being of God, God in the flesh, And it's just amazing at this particular point that Jesus, he could say or do anything. And it's amazing. You find this over and over again. He does what you and I could do. What does the Scripture say? He always goes back to the Scripture. You can read it for yourself. When he's being tempted, he just repeats back what's been written down. And he, te- he looks at the Pharisees and says, I know you know the Torah, the Old Testament law. Let's go back and see what Moses says. And they go back to this phrase in Deuteronomy 24. And then Jesus looks at them and basically says this, Pharisees, you have the wrong starting point. You're looking at marriage and your starting point is let's make sure we know what all the loopholes are. Before we get into this relationship, I've got to make sure I know what all the reasons are that I might be able to get out of the relationship. And that's their starting point. What are the concessions that God has to make for fallen humanity, because I'm going to marry a fallen human, and I want to understand what I can do sort of legitimately or legally. That's my starting point. And and Jesus just stands up and says, you're missing it, guys. When, when When you start thinking about marriage, go before the law. Go back. You haven't gone far enough back. Go back to the beginning. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Start by what's the divine intention for marriage. Let's look at that. Let's lift up the divine intention for marriage before we ever start to think about what are the exceptions, what are the ways out. And so we look back and Jesus is talking in about some verses in Genesis 1 and 2. It's fascinating to me that Jesus now, uh, let's say 3,000 years later, 
maybe 1,500 years later from when Moses wrote this down. He's affirming Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. In our culture, even in our Christian culture, those chapters quite often are just sort of, well, that's a story, or he didn't really mean that. Jesus goes back to this and said, here's the truth about marriage. It's grounded in Moses' words in Genesis 1 and 2. And he's pointing out, and I'm going to just point out two things, that the divine intention for marriage was meant to be about. And I realize that these concepts for us may just seem so incredibly basic. Like, Paul, anyone would know this information. How about a little something new on marriage? Well, first of all, I'd say there isn't anything new for me to give you. And the second thing I would say is this definition, this design for marriage that Jesus goes back to, nothing is under more attack in our culture than this design. All of us can go out the door and you don't have to go very far to find out that there's all kinds of groups trying to redefine what marriage is or what marriage isn't. And so Jesus leads us back to Genesis chapter 1 and he's going to give us a definition of marriage and then he's going to talk about the design. First of all, the definition. Jesus starts with Genesis 1:27. God made Notice that God made them male and female. It wasn't accidental. Males and females just didn't pop up going. And he says, well, gosh, this is what I've got to work with. He made them. He made them for a particular purpose. He makes them male and female. Therefore, or for this reason, they're made male and female. And then for this reason, they're made this unique way for a particular purpose. And that purpose is marriage. And that relationship now supersedes every other relationship that's known to mankind. The marriage relationship is preeminent above every relationship. And that should be drilled into the heads of parents that are here. Your relationship with your child, son or daughter, is underneath their relationship with their person that they've married. You have a very important responsibility while they're underneath your care. But once they make a new relationship, that supersedes all relationships. And you're underneath that. That should be stated for people who are married as well and still have struggles sort of cutting the cords with their parents. You have become a unique one body. And nothing's supposed to get in the way of that. So his, his definition... Males and females were made for a particular purpose and they were made for marriage. And you remember this great, it's such a great scene. God looks at man and it's not good for him to be alone. Remember that? He makes, he takes a rib out of the side, it's an important feature, and he makes a woman and then God, the Father, brings the bride to Adam. This is the picture that we have. That's why a father brings his bride down to the, to, the, um, to the spouse. And the very first recorded words we have for mankind are his response to his bride. Isn't that great? He looks at his bride and he sings a song which I'm not going to sing for you right now, but he, he bursts into a song. It's like, I can't just say you're wonderful. I have to sing that you're wonderful. 
And that's the very beginning of this relationship. The man just can't contain himself. The incredible gift he's been given, his wife, and he's been given this incredible gift by God. So Jesus here is affirming that marriage is not man's idea. It's not a cultural idea. Marriage comes from God. It's defined by God. God is designed by God. And marriage is not up for redefinition. It comes from Genesis chapter 1. Now, that's the definition. A man and a woman are made. They're unique and they're made for marriage. One man and one woman. And then God is going to supply the design. If you look in verse 7 and 8. The two things I want to talk about here in terms of the design is the intimacy of the design and the permanence of the design. Notice the language in terms of intimacy. Verse 7. Or verse, uh, yeah, verse 7. Therefore, or for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Now this... This hold fast, this word here is the word that you would use for glue. It's like an adhesive. And I don't know if you've ever done this, but maybe you've licked the back of an envelope, you've sealed it, and 20 minutes later you go, I don't think I put the check in there, or I forgot something. And you try to carefully pull that back apart, and you just realize, I just need a new envelope. You rip it up, and you're frustrated at yourself. Because once it's, it's adhered to the back of the envelope, you can't just pull it up and insert or take something else out. It's ripped apart. You have to start all over. And so when he's talking about a man and a woman being together, they're holding fast. They're, they're glued together. There's no way to separate the two. They're now one flesh. You ever, you ever seen, you might want to check your collars here, but have you ever seen a lover's embrace? They're so wrapped around each other. They're so together, you can't tell where one person ends and another person begins. It's, it's a great embrace. It's the embrace that the man wants when he sees his bride. I want to be so in, in, in you and around you that there's no separation now between the two of us. And that's the image that God's trying to give. That's the image that Jesus is lifting up. He's saying, this is unique. And once we put these two things together and they're holding fast to each other, there's no way now to separate them without a tearing apart. The other phrase that he uses is the word one flesh, meaning monogamy. That's God's design. One male, one female bonded together in a union that's not supposed to be separated either by polygamy. And I was just reading just this week on... uh, a man who has married two women in the Netherlands. And that's a marriage now in the, in the Netherlands. And that's not the design. But you know by living in America the fight over whether a man and a man can be married and a woman and a woman can be married. So there's this one flesh. This one flesh is going to come together with one male and one female. And so, when somebody sort of jokingly says to you, you're married, and they say, well, where's your better half? That's a good way to say that you're not whole anymore without your wife or your husband. 
You're a half now. Before you were married, you were a whole. But once you got married, you're just a half. Because without the other half, you're now no longer one whole person or one whole being. If you get torn apart, there's a tearing that's not what God has designed. So, one of His designs for marriage is intimacy. One of His designs for marriage is permanence. I want, I want you to feel the force of verse 9. These are not words quoted from Genesis. These are words that Jesus now sort of tacks on to His discussion about marriage. And it's, it's what's pronounced at the very end of the marriage ceremonies. Now that the Lord has joined this together... Let no man, no one come in and rent asunder, sometimes it's for, uh, said, or separated. Nobody, literally in the, in the Hebrew, nobody's supposed to create any space between these two people. You know, the, this idea of permanence is part of every wedding ceremony when you go to the uh, reception. Pretty typically, a reception, the bride and groom come in, and what's, what's the very first thing that happens? They have some kind of dance, right? And everybody stands around, and they look at the couple dance, and ooh and ah, and that kind of thing. And if you look up on websites like me, particularly bored, you might look and say, well, what are popular wedding dance songs? That's so, so that's what I did this week. Popular wedding dance songs. And almost they're all the same. They're super sappy. You're sort of embarrassed by the language in some way. And one of the most popular ones, a, a song by Lionel Richie and Diana Ross. You know this song? Endless Love. If you're, if you're as old as I am, you know this. You can sing it in your head right now. I'm not going to sing it to you. I'll say a few words. My love, there's only you in my life. This, this makes my skin a little creepy right now just thinking about it. <laughs> The only thing that's right, my first love, you're every breath that I take, you're every step I make, and I want to share all my love with you, no one else. Why? Because you're my endless love. But that, that's the picture, is it not? When we sang this, this song today, Forever, weren't you glad about that? That forever God is faithful. He didn't say, well, well, sometimes God is faithful. When you get your act together, He's going to be faithful. No, forever. All the time. And when you come to the wedding ceremony, it's meant forever. It's nothing is supposed to create space in between this relationship. It's always endless. I'm one now with this person. And I can't be separated from those things. We understand it from another perspective, biblically. Deuteronomy 31, remember when Moses is, is leaving Joshua to lead the people into Israel? He says this, God says this, Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified or afraid. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. When God gives pretty much the same call in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples. Remember that? Go make disciples of all nations. And I will 
be with you all the way to the end of the age. When you get married to me as a disciple of Christ, I'm going to be with you forever. And nobody can create space between the two of us. And what's so important about this picture, marriage is supposed to be the picture of that to all of society. So when people come across your marriage or my marriage and they don't know Christ, they could just look at your marriage and say, it's a lot like that right there. That's what it's like. And we're going to talk about that in the coming weeks. But do you see what happens when you grow up into a culture and there's space created in a marriage? Whether you're living together or not living together, your children and society now cannot see God as clearly. It's just much more difficult for them to see who God is. Because in your marriage, space has been created where there is supposed to be no space. Jesus ends his discussion with his disciples, you notice in verse 10. There's been this public discussion and then apparently they get beside him. And just like they do in other places, well, what exactly were you saying in that parable? Can you teach us more about this? And they come alongside Jesus in a house and they bring back this matter about marriage and divorce. And I can't say it any plainer than Jesus said, if a man divorces his wife and he marries another one, he commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another one, she commits adultery against him. In the book of Mark, in this chapter, Jesus offers no exceptions. Now, this is a place I could get myself into a lot of trouble, pretty severe unpopularity, because all of us have been involved in some form or fashion, I'm sure, with a divorce. And I can hear inside the same shouting that I would have at this point. Well, well, what about unfaithfulness? What about abandonment? What about, and you just fill it in. And if we had a little Q&A session after the sermon, here's my guess. Most of the questions would be about exceptions. Well, you know, I was involved with this, or I had a friend, and what about, and you, you would want to sort of tag me in a nice way with, what are, what are the exceptions? I need to know the loopholes here. And I want you to clear me here, yeah, I want you to clear, hear me clearly say this, that in other places of the Bible, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7, there are written exceptions. However, what I'm trying to do here in Mark 10 is I'm just trying to lift up high marriage. I'm just trying to bring marriage and trying to, I'm trying to lift it out of the exceptions 
of this world. I'm trying to lift it out of the, the fallen humanity and, and to, to let us gaze on it just one more time of what God's original intent was instead of like you and I getting in and saying, well, yeah, but you know, what about? And having all kinds of loopholes and exceptions. No exceptions here. Here it is in its original design. Two people, a man and a woman, come together, and once they're bonded together, there's no way to separate those two without a tearing happening. No matter what the reason may be. Jesus, or God, says it this way in Malachi 2, I hate divorce. Now, obviously, he's going to make some concessions for it. That's why Deuteronomy 24.1 even exists. But the divine intention is not for that. If you really... I want to go back to the beginning now. If you're going to really love your spouse like it's divinely intended for you to do, what is it going to cost? When you, when you join yourself together and you're walking down the trail in your marriage, some of your most prized possessions are going to have to be laid at the side of the road. You're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to take up your cross. You're going to have to lose your life for somebody else's life's sake. And so we need to go back to the beginning and ask ourselves, is that a foundational, operational principle for me? Or is it just optional? I just exercise it when I feel like it. In, in conclusion, I want to just say two things. Number one, when you get to this um, idea of divorce, no matter where you stand, you, you could be a seeker here just trying to get your thoughts wrapped around who Christ is. In, in every case, when you come across a divorce, every one of us recognize it as something that's gone wrong. I remember working in an office where the man who was getting divorced was throwing this great party, having all of his friends over, and I just thought, what a travesty. He's celebrating something gone wrong. Everybody recognizes that something has gone wrong, even if you don't have anything to do with it. Something has happened that's not meant to happen. And it points to a much more significant problem on a much larger scale that involves everybody in this room and everybody in the world. Something has gone horribly wrong. A union between God and His creation has been separated by man. You and me have created space between a divine relationship. And we have traded in a gold band that has value beyond what we could imagine or ask for a chain of self-fulfillment. Wealth. I need to be heard. I need to be needed. I need to be right. 
I've got to have money. I've got to have control. And we're wrapping ourselves and choking ourselves with a chain. And we're not going to be able to take that chain off. Unless somebody, and this is the Gospel, somebody comes and says, I'll be ripped apart on your behalf. You take back my union with God. And that's exactly what happens on the cross. Jesus Christ physically, and I don't need to describe it, is ripped apart. So you and I might be able to see that also spiritually He's been ripped apart so that we can have His wholeness back. Remember when the prodigal son comes back? He gets a robe. He gets a fatted calf. And what else does he get? A ring. You're back in if you know Christ. The second thing I would say is if you look upon a man or a woman with lust, according to Jesus, you have committed adultery. So no matter how, many, how low you may be feeling as somebody in this room who's been through a divorce, maybe more than one, maybe you're going through one right now, maybe you're contemplating it now, all of us are adulterers. But God has given forgiveness. And so there is nothing you have done that can't be paid for by the blood of the Lamb. And so we can shout that Jesus Christ has come and brought us back together with Him so that no matter where we are now, we can begin to walk our lives out in our marriages in the future, our marriages right now, or how to be godly in a marriage that we once had. Let's pray together. Lord, You have just drilled into the very center with Your challenges about greatness, power, money, marriage. It's like You've gotten inside and you're just, you're just tearing at the fabric of our foundation. And Your intent is just to shift the center of gravity that forever has been wrapped around ourselves, that forever we've, we've just lived with a chain, we've been imprisoned, but you have come to set us free from that, to reorient our whole lives now around the only one who does love and last forever. I recognize there are some awfully lonely people in this room. And the loneliest of them are the ones who are married but not well loved. And so I just would pray, Lord, for Your Holy Spirit to, to do something as, as we've lifted up high the original intent of marriage. Many of us are left in the wake of that and wondering now, what do we do? What do we say? Where do we go? How do we live? 
And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help. That you would encourage. Persevere. Cut things off. Lay things aside. For, for your sake. Lord, we, uh, we have an offering now. We, we know no amount of money given earns any love for you. It's all displayed on the cross. We're grateful for that. But we do want to be honoring in our marriages, in our money, with how we serve and we follow in your footsteps. In Jesus' name, amen.